episode of Comics Rot Your Brain, the podcast where professional screenwriters talk about the comic books that we love, mostly from the 1980s. I'm one of your hosts, I'm Stephen Bagatorian. And I'm your other host, Chris Derrick. Chris, the comic book that we had a conversation about this episode, a deep dive, if you will, like we do, uh, is a little comic called Nexus. And holy cow, what a freaking comic book this is. This book is amazing. This book is one of my favorite books. It's crazy because we always say these books are our favorite books, but I don't <laughs> think we'd be covering them if they weren't books that that's, were so important to us. Yes. So true. That's why we picked them. That's why yes. we picked them, folks. The game but is this rigged. book is top. This is a top, <laughs> top book. I got to tell you, I man, think, it's so fucking yeah. good. So we are good. in complete agreement. Nexus is absolutely, I think, one of the landmark comic books uh, in American comics of all time. Uh, certainly one of the landmark uh, independent comics. It has lasted for over 100 issues over these last uh, many decades, and it has spanned multiple publishers from Capital to First to Dark Horse. Now it's at Rude Dude. Uh, but for those of you who don't know Nexus, Nexus is a space opera, an extraordinarily unique space opera created by Mike Barron, the writer, and Steve Rude, the artist, uh, also known as The Dude. And what these guys created is something really, truly remarkable. And I find Nexus to be just amazingly unique. And for those of you who don't know what Nexus is about, or perhaps you've forgotten, uh, let me just give you a quick summary. Nexus is about a fellow named Horatio Hellpop, which is really one of my favorite names in the history of comics. Uh, Horatio Hellpop receives these amazing, unbelievable powers from a an alien entity, a godlike alien entity called the Merc, gives Horatio these superpowers where he can fly. I believe he has some kind of a super strength. He shoots lightning bolts. He's got all kinds of crazy powers. And as he is gifted with these powers, Horatio also is indebted to this entity, the Merc, who insists that Nexus is now tasked with seeking out and killing a certain amount of mass murderers um, every little while. And so once the Merc selects a target for Horatio, Horatio is plagued with agonizing headaches and horrific nightmares. And he's plagued by these visions of these mass murderers committing genocide, committing all kinds of just awful, unspeakable crimes. And when he awakens, Horatio, a.k.a. Nexus, must seek out these murderers and execute them. For that's really what Nexus is. It's a story about an executioner in outer space who has to execute all kinds of people and killers, people who've done terrible things. And Nexus lives on a planet himself called Ilum, which is spelled really funky. And I'm sure many people have mispronounced that book or uh, that planet when they read the book early. Ilum is spelled Y-L-U-M, but it's a planet full of uh, refugees and aliens from all across the galaxy. Nexus lives there with the love of his life, Sundra, and Nexus himself is a very conflicted character. And throughout the series, we see him execute a lot of folks and he has mixed feelings. He is tortured and he's not always sure he wants to continue to wear the mantle of the Nexus. But um Baron and Rude initially pitched the story as a quote-unquote superhero back in the day to Capital 
Capital Comics, I believe, because Capital wanted to only publish uh, a superhero comic at the time. So they said, sure, this is a superhero comic, but really it's got only the most glancing nod to a superhero comic. Maybe if you glance at Nexus's costume, but otherwise it's just full on space opera. It's sci-fi and it's a story of a freaking executioner in outer space. I mean, I can't think of too many cooler concepts for a comic book than Nexus. And and that just scratches the surface. The details of Nexus, the aliens, the worlds, the concepts, all of it, the ideas, it's all mind-blowing. It really is. Uh, it's one of the greatest American comics of all time. And uh, yeah, man, I love the discussion we had about it. But that's that's Nexus in a, in a little bit of a nutshell. Right, right. And so the books we covered is that we covered the first three black and white issues and then we uh, that were done by Capital. And then we covered the first 11 color issues that were done by First. And I tell you, man, it was such a ride. And I can't wait for everyone to hear the discussion. So let's get on with the show. Okay, Steve. So today we are talking about Baron and Rue's Nexus, which is one of yes. my favorite comics of all fucking time. Um, so let's talk about how you first got, you know, like first saw the book and got interested into it. And just, just talk about like how you, um, found a way to fall in love with this book. Okay. Shit. That's a really good question. I believe that I must've first encountered Nexus back around 1984, which was the year that I first started reading comics probably 84 or 85 DC comics used to put these uh, ads in their books whenever amazing heroes or like the comic buyer's guide or even the Eagle awards in England would list their like annual award winners, um, best books of the year, that kind of shit. And I remember. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I remember that. You no, know, you know, they were like they were in the books, and it would be Swamp Thing and American Flag, and and I'm pretty sure one of those lists might have been the first place I saw Nexus talked about. It was definitely the first place I saw American Flag, but I think basically from the time I started reading comics, I was always aware that there were indie comics being published by other publishers because of those lists in the DC books and for sure, for sure. Pretty soon. Yeah. I, I started to kind of dig around a little bit and I was young. I was really little, but I started to dig around looking for those books. And I don't think it was right away that I discovered Nexus, but it was probably within, I don't know, a few years, maybe like I didn't start going to comics specialty shops. Like I didn't discover the direct market right away. Cause when I started reading comics in 84 i was seven years old and i think i didn't discover that specialty shops in the direct market existed until i was like 11 or 12 and i was a pretty precocious reader so i probably bought nexus because i was just trying all kinds of shit at those shops i probably bought nexus sometime around then when i was like 11 12 maybe 13 and i'll be honest i don't think it clicked for me at all because I was too young for it back then. And I think I came back to it again when I was like 14 or 15, but it was not a book that instantly clicked for me at all. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting because like I saw the book a lot when I would go to this, uh, this store called Kovacs comics in Cleveland. And, mm -hmm. but I, but I never picked it up because it's interesting that I always talk about if you like a Marvel zombie or something like that. 
And I remember when I, I just didn't buy a lot of the indie books when I first started reading comics. And I started, I started reading comic, the indie books when I got a little older, like my late teens and when I was into college. So, so um, for me, I didn't read – I saw it all the time. And, I, and it was funny you bring up those little – those award things that were in DC because mm-hmm. they were never in the Marvel books which I think is fascinating. But I think it wasn't even till I came out to California and I was at my friend's shop up in like Granada Hills. And I remember I was buying some Dark Horse books. I think I was buying those. You remember that Dark Horse line? Like the, the Dark Horse had that superhero line with like X and like barbed wire and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I remember like greatest going to the world. store going, okay, yeah, Comics Chris World. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, what else does Dark Horse do? And there was like those, and there was the Nexus, the miniseries. And I got one of the miniseries, and I was like, this fucking book, the art in this, like fucking Steve Rude is killing me. Where's the rest of this book? And I was going around to this other shop I used to go to out of Ventura that's gone now. I can't remember the name of it now anymore. Um, and I was like, back, I was like, where the back issue, where the back issue of this book, where the, where the back issue of this. And I remember going out to, I remember I went down to, I remember I took, a, I took a drive one time to mile high comics down to Anaheim to go, Oh shit, I got to go buy because they probably have them down there. And I was, and I got so hooked because fucking Steve rude. But I think also I was telling you this one time before Steve rude, he did that world's finest miniseries in the in the mid '90s. Sometime there was like three yep. issues. I don't remember who wrote it, but I was like, "This guy is an amazing fucking writer. I mean, amazing fucking artist. What the fuck else has he done?" And I realized that he was doing Nexus, and I was like, "I gotta get more of this," because I couldn't believe that his work, which is so unique, it's kind of like a. He was saying that it's kind of like a Jack Kirby v like meets like Alex Toth like kind of combination, which is true if you think about it. And I was like, this guy's work is there's no one else doing work like him, and there's still no one else doing work like him now. And this is like 20, 30 years later, and and the Nexus coming out was like almost forty year, forty years ago now. Fucking wild, man! That's mind blowing. Cause like the book is still so fresh and original feeling. That is insane. That it's forty years old. Jesus, is that even possible? Yes. Wow. I mean, it's 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 wild because look, because when we when we were talking about doing this podcast, we were talking about finding these books and doing like 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 we can go back and we're gonna like do a reread as opposed to thinking about what we just love from memory and going back and and reading like those black and white ones and the first what fifteen or sixteen whatever thirteen that we read of the the color ones. It's startling how good the book is and how kind of timeless the writing is. There's a you know you know that science fiction author uh, Alfred Bester who wrote like Stars My Destination yeah like, yeah he, yeah legendary like, like, sure he wrote, he wrote that like in the fifties but it's one of these few fifties science fiction books that still holds up today and mm-hmm. that's how I think about Nexus like it it just holds up like they were so ahead of their time with the, what they were writing about how was character the characterizations and there's nothing that's so like um is nothing that like dates the book I think which is really interesting about the I mean like obviously certain things like the whole thing about like internet and the digital shit everything like that is not in this book but it doesn't suffer from that and it's I I, I don't I, I don't know you know it's just I mean and for those who haven't read it they gotta go read this book and there's those dark horse like omnibus things that that's how I was rereading it now but you know it's like I was telling you there was that one thing um 
what's his name? Tom Tom Bravoot had that that article on it recently on his page. And he was talking about how the the, the black and white ones are done by Cap Cities, right? Which was that yeah. distribution company. They, yeah, they were putting out comics. Yeah, they were putting out comics, and and they were saying that this is this. Is, I mean, for a company that's doing distribution to decide to get into publishing and to put out a book this fucking good is kind of it's it's unprecedented. It's so it, unprecedented. Yeah, it's true, man. It's it's true. Like it's seriously mind blowing how good Nexus is because you're completely right. Even from the very beginning with these black and white issues. Now, arguably, Rude's were Rude's work is rougher. It's clearly rougher. You can still see the genius in there, and you can still see flashes of brilliance. And it's incredible how fast Rude starts to become fully Steve Rude and starts to become the brilliant, uh, you know, once in a lifetime artist that he is. But I got to say that for me, the revelation in the black and white issues was Mike Barron, because reading how fully formed the story and the concepts and the ideas of Nexus and his whole supporting cast are right from the very beginning and how sophisticated the writing is for an initial foray into creator owned comics from a guy like Mike Barron. I don't know how old he was when he wrote this, but it is a shockingly well done piece of writing. And these first three issues, I mean, they lay out everything that you need to know about this initial concept and what is so brilliant about it. I mean, honestly, I expected it to be rougher. I expected it to kind of be a little bit more scattershot. Yeah. But the fucking story is amazing. Like, I actually think that it may have suffered in some people's eyes by the fact that those black and white issues were separate from, you know, what a lot of people's experience might have been if they just started with the color nexus number one. Because yes, the color yes. nexus number one, you know, while it's let's still it's still a good story and you get into like some very cool shit, it doesn't have the the emotional pop of those initial black and white issues that are so focused on Horatio as a child and Theodore Hellpop, the general. I mean, those black and white issues are bracingly brutal when you see the the genocide that's ordered by Horatio's father and all that. And maybe, I mean, we're, we're jumping ahead here, but maybe do you think, should we do like a brief summary of what Nexus is actually about for, for those listeners who actually have never read the book and have- For no, sure. You know, we, we, we turned it over ahead. We we're, we're, getting, because... we're putting the horse ahead of the cart, whatever the fuck the expression is. Well, we're doing that because we're. I, I, this is the main thing about we were talking about this whole podcast in general is this is a book that everybody should fucking know, and yes. if and it feels like because we know it and love it, we're like, well, who doesn't know about Horatio Hellpop and the story? <laughs> and it's like it seems strange that you don't know if you're a comic fan. But then again, but then again, you know, people who are new who 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 haven't had a chance because I think they stopped publishing the Dark Horse miniseries in the early nineties. So we're talking about at least 25 years or so since there's been like some Nexus stories. I, some- I think I think they did some stuff this century, but it has been it has been a minute. Here I'm I'm going to look it up, but it, No, no, you're right. Minute. No, no, I I yes. checked out like like there were some issues, there was those two stories in the 2012 uh Dark Horse Presents. But mm-hmm. so, so all right, so it was just so the quick catch up is so Nexus is a, he's not a god, but Nexus is, he's an assassin, and he's tasked with assassinating mass murderers. 
and he yes. gets his power from the planet that he lives on called Ilum. And from these two guys in the beginning, you find us these two guys named Alpha and Beta. We're kind of like these, um, I don't know, like sprites or gremlins or what have you. But they give him like this fusion casting ability, which allows him to exist in space, gives him strength and gives him this ability to shoot like some, some energy powers. And he can heal. He's kind of invulnerable and shit like that. And what happens is he gets these dreams where he dreams of mass murderers that drive him insane until he can go out and kill the mass murderer. And that's kind of the setup of who Horatio Hellpop is. And he's on this planet called Ilum, and he's got some refugees. And the main refugee is this boy, this guy named Dave, who's a Thune, who's kind of like a half gorilla. or some, He feels like a primate in some level, but I don't know if he is. Um, and, he, and he's kind like of a like a cross his, between like a horse and a gorilla, like Thunes. Yeah. Are kind of very unique looking aliens designed by Steve Rude. And uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and that's his thing. And he's tasked with killing these people. So he's got to go out and he's got to and, – and he has his refugee planet. And that's like the initial hit of what he's got to do and what the, the stories are all about. And how, how he deals – it's great because it's how he deals with killing people to stop his own pain. But he's killing people who have, who have caused like, immense trauma and have slaughtered millions. Cause, and the crazy thing is his dad. His dad had like, you know what, he killed that whole planet of people or some shit like that? Yeah, his, to like dad, save the- his, his dad killed millions and millions of people on a planet. His dad was a, a general uh, and was a genocidal murderer. And so there's this crazy history to this this curse that Horatio carries now where he's got to execute all these other murderers all around the galaxy and Horatio's own father was this genocidal murderer himself and in fact um in the the black and white nexus i believe uh yeah i mean his father is i mean does he kills his father his father is the the yeah. first person he kills yeah. as just as a child kills, yeah mm-hmm. yeah he's like seven or eight or some shit like that you know mm-hmm. it's crazy i mean i mean so so for so for so for those who haven't read the book that's like the initial thrust and the whole series is about how Horatio deals with, you know, his dreams. And he's basically given orders in his dreams that will kill him if he doesn't to kill to kill other mass murderers. And it's yeah, fascinating. And it's, it's, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. It's a fascinating kind of concept because it's like, is he doing good? But he's doing bad to do good, you know. But it's it's I don't know. It's a good, it's a it's a good morality play from Jump. You know, a reality play that almost no other comic does. You know, where does it, I, I can't think of any comic that does that that puts that puts it so. You know, it's always about the great responsibility, power, great responsibility, like like that runs like in every Marvel comic there is, right? Whether it's X Men, Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. Spider Man, obviously, you know, just like all of it, Thor, just they all. It's like you got this power, you got to use it for good, for the greater good. You know, and mm-hmm. but they're not they're not killing anyone. You know, they have a whole code. I ain't killing nobody. But ne- right. Nexus is a little different. Um, it's fascinating. It's truly fascinating. Yeah, it's actually so true, and it's dope that you say it's like a morality play because that's one of the things that struck me reading it is there's such a profundity and pain and sense of loss and sadness in Nexus. And it's so unusual for something that I think 
it was ostensibly a superhero book, but really like it's only the most glancing nod to the superhero genre in the sense that Nexus has a costume. And I think that was the the brief that Baron and Rude had been given from Capital was that they could do any kind of book more or less, but that it had to be a superhero comic. And yeah. so this was like their version of a superhero comic. But honestly, it's like no fucking superhero comic that anyone's ever done really before no, or since. No. It doesn't feel like a fucking superhero comic. It feels like science fiction. It feels like really, really fascinating, super imaginative science fiction. And honestly, very political sci-fi because there is this whole Soviet sort of Russian thing going on with the, the Sov empire and the fact that Nexus, I don't know if we said this, it's set way in the future. Like it's yeah, set it's super like centuries a, like in the future. It's, yeah, it's like 31st century or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah, it's way, way ahead in the future. But then it's like they're talking about the past sometimes in Nexus. or Yeah, in Nexus, but their past is way in our future. So, for example, in the first black and white books, Horatio is dreaming of the past. And the past for him then is 2461. So, and yeah. that was when, you know, like that was the time that uh, some of the historical stuff with his father and whatnot, I think started to happen. But yeah, this is way, way in our future. And really the superhero angle doesn't play in any, in any substantial way other than just, it's a dope ass costume that you could mistake for a superhero. But otherwise this is just like some serious emotional, intellectual, science fiction, political stuff. And that's what genuinely blew me away the most was Baron's breadth of knowledge and the sort of references that Baron is making through those first black and white issues and the first 13 color issues that we read, you know, here in total. I was genuinely astonished at the the level of stuff that Baron was able to cram in here all in the space of this one book. And Horatio Hellpop a.k.a. Nexus, is actually quite a brilliant dude. And you see it in the black and white issues. As a child, he's reading Russian literature. He's he's studying books. And it's kind of a brilliant gambit by Baron because he's got this main character who's... He's at the center of a morality play, as you say, but he's also someone who has the exposure to philosophy and history and reading through his own cultivation of study and his own kind of brilliance, that he's a guy who's suffering this immense sort of unbelievable curse, but yet he's also erudite and sort of learned himself in, in terms of history and philosophy. So he's, he's talking about it. And he's able to sort of put words to some of the stuff he's going through in a way that you don't typically see in heroic fiction. Like he's more self-aware of his condition. And it's really fascinating because Baron gives himself the license to allow this brilliant character to be suffering and going through stuff. I mean, there's references to Dostoevsky and allusions to all kinds of like the great Russian authors. Yeah, here. yeah, you're right. I mean, so it's, it's weird and fascinating. Like, I mean, what what comic, what superhero book that you can think of has this many layers of stuff going on and at the same time in talking about it this way it sounds super serious like the way we're talking about it like oh the suffering of of everything but in fact the book is also hilarious 
And it's, it's so fucking funny. That's the craziest okay. balancing act. That's the magic trick. That's what I was going to say. The cool, the thing about Nexus, I think, is fucking. This, this is what Baron brings to it that that he didn't bring to any other book that I that that his that I've read is that he. You're right. You said the philosophy. He doesn't mm-hmm. shy away from that. But also, what he does was I, which I don't know anyone who does this as a writer in 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 fucking like in in any medium. Right. He's able to balance these characters who have this weird ass speech. He he crams in word plays all the time, so you're yes. constantly laughing at jokes. The, like you said before, the characters are so well defined, like Dave and Judah and fucking Tyrone. They're so it's, and they off these different voices, but he does make it funny. Like you're constantly kind of laughing at how people respond to stuff, and and and, and Judah is so like he's 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 almost like a parody. But he's a parody with heart in a way that when he's and he speaks in this kind of weird kind of like uh like the tone is like some it's it's it's, it's sort of theatrical in a way like it's yes. this weird it's this weird kind of like Byronic kind of like hero but he's <laughs> he, but it's done in a way this kind of parodying that but not in a bad way that makes you dislike him and he's it's so fucking hilarious but the thing that I loved about about the books is. Some people do this, some people don't. But Baron does it all the time. Is every title page has mm-hmm. got some quote from some great philosopher yes. or from yes. some fucking book that's just like <laughs> what you know that and just I remember when I, was, when I started reading this. I I, I was like, who are these authors? I need to read right. some of these authors because I'm curious to know where the, like they're making these these language points and stuff like that. There's it's there's there's no one else like that. There's no other writer who's doing a comic. That is so accessible, and it's accessible because of Rude's art, because it's so mm-hmm. like wow, wow, fucking like the world building is insane. But it just it's 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 fascinating, and like I said, like you said, the characterizations are so burning bright from the front. But mm-hmm. the one thing I think is interesting is, as you want to have with 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 any hero, and you mm-hmm. see it more so in Nexus than probably any other hero book is Nexus. As Horatio, he changes so much as a person. Like if, you, if you look at the way he is in that first black and white issue to the final one we read where he's putting that that chip in his brain to stop the dreams, where he's all fat and sloppy and he's like giving <laughs> orders and, and he can't take – and he's like – and he's like got no patience and shit. It's like yeah. he's so transformed. It's yeah. such a – I mean like I don't know like any character – in a comic that makes that kind of a that kind of change in his character and his personality, you know, based upon what he's going through throughout what the plot is making him do, it's really interesting. It's really that's a great point, and that's the thing I think is why it's kind of fucked up that this book is not just like championed by everybody who wants to be a comic writer because it's yeah. like here's the bar that you yep. better fucking jump over. And if you, I mean, yeah, and, and and there's no one who does this. I mean, you know, people love like, uh, you know, there's guys we love who right now, like, like, like modern guys. Like we talk, we talk about John Hickman every once in a while, but it's sure. like, he's, he's great, but it's like, but he doesn't have the humor that, mm-hmm. the, you know, that Baron has. And, and, and that's where Baron like is like, Oh shit. This, I mean, he just gets, I mean, and even that character, the clone zone, the, the fucking like the yeah. comedian, yeah. Like, where, where, that's what's cool is that he's got someone who can go so extreme and so like, 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 it's like, like you're rolling your eyes at his bad puns, yeah. but it's not over the top of the way where it's like, Oh, okay, this is terrible. It's like, it's like, he, I use it. This is high wire act that everybody who was like, I think if, you, if you're writing fiction, you need to be fucking reading Nexus. 
it, this is my opinion. Yeah, no, one million percent. I mean, I'm so happy that we're talking about Nexus on the show because I do know that it was a book that was widely celebrated in the comics community at the time that it was released. You know, like I think it got a whole bunch of Eisner awards and nominations and wins, I think for particularly for Rude, uh, but I think for Baron as well. Uh, So it was celebrated. But at the same point, I'm really happy to be discussing it here because I don't feel like it's a book that I hear enough people talking about today. And that is a goddamn tragedy. Because when you look at this, I agree with everything you said. It is a bar that is so high and so uniquely just formed the way that their vision is put together here that you don't see many people jumping over that bar then or now. And I think that the thing I love about Nexus is in my mind, Nexus feels like my platonic ideal of pure comics because it is something that you can scarcely imagine existing in another medium without being dramatically changed or bastardized in order to dumb it down for some sort of so-called mass audience. You know, oh, for sure, for sure. Even today, even today in the world we live in, where it's so many fucking comic book projects getting adapted, blah, blah, blah. You could just hear the notes coming from any executive at a studio or a streamer like, oh, we need to tone down some of this humor, some of this wackiness. Do we really need the clone zone character? The character you mentioned is literally a giant alien lizard who's like a bad lounge comedian, right? He's literally a lounge lizard and all of his jokes are terrible. He's like some old vaudeville comedian who's a giant fucking alien lizard. I think half the fan base of Nexus even hated him, according to the letter column. But Baron clearly was tickled by Clone Zone and Clone Zone ended up getting backups in Nexus as it went on. So much backups, so much backups. Yeah, but it's hilarious, but it really points to just, like you say, the the twin poles, like these incredible fucking extremes that Baron and Rude somehow navigate between, because it's a very serious story about genocide, politics, the suffering of this one man, and yet the absurdity of the story, the absolute insanity and absurdity of the wacky alien races, the slapstick comedy, it is right there at the center of it even down to the name of the fucking protagonist, Horatio Hellpop. Hellpop. Like, yeah. like, it's a yeah. fucking absurd name, but I also think it's one of the greatest comic book names of all time. Because For sure. contained, you contained in it. that name, in that fucking name is like a microcosm for the whole Nexus because Horatio Hellpop, like that first name has a sense of history and gravitas and yet combined with hell pop it's got that absurdity and the wackiness and i think that name it really encapsulates what is so unique and beautiful about this whole series and you're right i haven't seen anyone else do anything like nexus i can't even think of a real comparable for it and yet i can't yeah like you know what i mean like it's just it's so unique it's very singular and yet I don't hear a lot of people today name checking Nexus as their favorite comic or one of their favorite comics. And perhaps we would have heard a lot more of that in the 80s. But I, I don't feel like it exists in the conversation in the comics community as much as it should, considering the caliber of the work. And that's curious to me. And I have some theories about that, but I'm, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts maybe on, on why you think Nexus isn't really, it's not really discussed in the 
80s pantheon in the way that so many other books that I would say are lesser books are frequently brought up. So, okay, so a couple of things to that. One, the height of Nexus is like, because it, it, it it's 81 to 82 in the um, black and white. It takes six months off to start, start at first. So we're looking at 83 to around like maybe like 88, right, is when the mm-hmm. is the, the big chunk of this of this series. Yep. So that's when like Burn, that's Crisis is out. That's when Watchmen is out. That's when Dark Knight Returns is out. Yep. That's when the, the you know it's uh uh it's when Secret Wars is out. It's when the Spider Man the black the black suit is out first time. And I'm like, I think that look as much as we like um, Alan Moore, he not he doesn't have the depth of like. I don't say the depth. He doesn't have the 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 flexibility or the range of the poles of the the satire, the politics, the comedy, the darkness, the the the, the hardcore emotionality. And I think that the book is not loved by enough people because it's hard to grasp. I think that that if you're gonna read Batman, uh, Dark Knight Returns, Miller's work, which I think is celebrating its like its 35th anniversary or something like that this year, is like it's fucking amazing. But it's a very it's a Batman story, and it's very mm-hmm. black and white in terms of what yep. it's trying to do and what it's trying to say. And and there's and and there's, there's no gray area on tone. That's the thing too. It's the tone of this book. It like he can oscillate the tone within the same panel. Yeah. You know, like it's gonna be funny, <laughs> right. and yes. then in the next, in this, and someone's response is gonna be like, yeah. "Here's some dark shit," and then all of a sudden, here's some like some straight up like slapstick shit. And like, who can do that? I think that like it's. I think that people are afraid of it. Mm-hmm. I think comic people are afraid of it because it's so good that you're just like, I can't even get that good. You know, I I, I can't. I I mean, you, I just don't think I think of. It's interesting you bring up. I you guess know, one of the things I had in my notes I want to talk about was you mentioned this about well, what it covers, right, and how timeless the book is. And yeah. and after this, I want to hear about your thoughts as to why people don't don't love it now. But but I totally. think this is part of why what it is because it's a it's because like any good science fiction thing, it is a great it's a great you know like political critique, right? Because it's got mm-hmm. it talks about slavery with the heads. It's mm-hmm. got rape. But the rape mm-hmm. is female on male because that you know with the consent when when Ursula like Imada like basically rapes Nexus mm-hmm. and when they're traveling Earth that one time like that's mm-hmm. kind of rare that's kind of like when does that happen you know yeah. and the, and then yeah. there's there's the, there's the media the media the, the media is so overwhelming and it's almost like this telepathy with the with the media it's just everywhere and it, and that kind of was like interesting kind of like it was advertising it's a precursor of what's going on with social media now you know. Mm-hmm. There's a communism gets critiqued. There's income inequality gets critiqued. There's the refugee crisis. There's yes. mass murder sanctions by states. Yes. This is yes. all shit that he that he's grappling with forty years ago. That we're yes. still grappling with now. That's yes. why it's like, oh my god, how do you even write on that level? And I don't. And I think that's why. I think you're if you really drop down about it, it's so awe. And it's not even awe inspiring. It's just it just it just creates awe. And I think that mm-hmm. people are like, no, we can't fuck with this. I think comic careers like, we can't fuck with this. Because as good as like John Byrne is, as good as all these guys are, they don't have this ability to like, you know, just to be in every – it's just you said too about how in this is pure comics because you know if this was – I remember I told you like in the early 2000s, I tried to like 
like like to I, I tried to option this to take it to some people to do it as a cartoon. And right. the first thing they told me was, um, let's get away with this these executions. I was like, you can't get away from the executions <laughs> let's, if let's you're gonna do, do Nexus. Like let's do Nexus with no executions, right. <laughs> yeah. So but so I, I think that's what it is. I think the book is so like it's I think it's just you can't grab it and say it belongs in this box or it's this type of story. And that's why I think people can't relate to it. Like even other comic creators can't relate to it. And the fucking Rue's art is pissing on, is shitting on everyone. It really, I mean, look, it's so, look, it's it's, so true. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to like say shame anyone, but we all know everyone is good. Who's we are, our top people. And we know like, Jim, you know, Jim Lee, you know, burn, you know, Perez, like, you know, Layton, all these people, they're great artists, but like what, what Rue does in terms of like the world building, it's like, fuck, you know, I, I mean, I mean, but yeah. I mean, I, I go on forever, but talk to me about, talk to me about your theory as to why people like, 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 like just aren't into, like even creators aren't into this book. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny you say that. Okay. I have, I have so many thoughts on what you just said. Uh, first off, I, I do want to agree wholeheartedly with what you just said about Steve Rude being on a whole nother level, because look, these issues that we read, these are not even peak Steve Rude yet. No, no. He's still, he's still <laughs> ramping up. He's still <laughs> ramping up. And he, it's fucking crazy. crazy. It's insane. He's still wrapping up and you're 100% right. He's shitting on everybody in comics just about. At this point, he's already just fucking drawing circles around 99% of the artists in comics. And I would say he's still probably a year or two, maybe even three, four years away from his peak when he gets to be fully maybe in at the mastery level of his own sort of apex of his, uh, of his dudeness. Uh, yeah. However... I, I think that what you say is fascinating that people can't get their arms around Nexus. It's not easily apprehendable because I personally adore Alan Moore and I always will name check Alan Moore as like my favorite comics writer, my favorite writer of all time. I could not think more highly of him, but you're absolutely right that Alan Moore's work as brilliant and sophisticated and just extraordinary as it is. And again, he's my favorite writer it's also very neatly encapsulated in large part in collected editions that are very easy to understand when you look at Watchmen, when you look at V for Vendetta, when you look at From Hell. I mean, the books that have burnished the legend of Alan Moore, and rightfully so, are books that you can give to a quote-unquote civilian quite often and have yeah. them understand. And they really do read like brilliant writing just out the box. And because yeah. they're not because they're not based on pre-existing IP of any kind, and but also, and most importantly, they're self-contained stories that exist between one cover that you right. can read like a novel. And of course, there's exceptions in Alan Moore's bibliography, like Swamp Thing, Saga of the Swamp Thing is a little bit longer, etc. But I'm saying like the core texts of Alan Moore, when you say Alan Moore, people say Watchmen, V for Vendetta, and From Hell, those are going to be three of the top five. And those are books, particularly Watchmen, you can hand them to anybody, they can read them, boom, I get it, deconstruction of superheroes, all the characters introduced here, beginning, middle, and end, wow. Very easy to apprehend. Nexus is not that at all. Nexus, no. as you said, dude, it's fucking challenging. It's challenging. Like you're throwing all these ideas in there and Baron 
clearly was a voracious reader, I'm sure is a voracious reader, has this incredibly yearning side to him in terms of his own spirituality, but also his politics. And he's looking for answers and he's examining the big issues, the great questions of our time through this construct of science fiction and genre. And he's doing it, though, with this playfulness that is so unusual. And I think it honestly short circuits most people's brains. Because you and I know from working in Hollywood that what freaks out people in Hollywood more than almost anything is when they don't understand the tone of something. And like, everyone's like, yeah, right. It's like their brains fucking freak out. That's why in Hollywood, it's like, oh, well, what's the comparables? What is it? It's this meets that, right? You got to have the pre-existing fucking thing that we can compare your thing to or else we can't process it. And with Nexus, Mike Barron doesn't give you those kind of handrails to other comics. So when, when no less of a source than Harlan Ellison offers a quote that they use on on the cover of Nexus. I think it's, uh, I'm reaching for it here. It's uh, Nexus number four. On the cover, it says, glows with originality, Harlan Ellison. Yeah. I think he's 100% right, but I do think it's a double-edged sword because that very same originality, I would suspect, is part of the reason that Nexus is not really understood by a lot of people or appreciated even. And it is such an original thing, but I think people don't understand how you can be deeply emotional and yet also wacky and slapstick, how you can be philosophical and you can be politically serious and dealing with issues like genocide, but then in the same issue of a comic, have some wacky joke with some quirky aliens doing something goofy. And I think that mashup to me is part of the pure comics of it all, because it's something that can only exist in a comic book that I can't imagine existing in other forms. And it is really, really just, it's a shame that people don't, I don't know, that people don't understand what Baron's doing here and what Rude's doing. But it reminds me of a quote that I remember reading in a review Uh, that was talking about another writer, but they were comparing this writer to Alan Moore. And they were saying that Moore's writing has that quality that I mentioned a second ago, that Alan Moore's writing often screams great writing on every page. I don't don't know that Mike Barron's writing screams great writing on every page, because depending on the page you read, it might be some wacky slapstick shit. It might be just a really funny, goofy bit or whatever. So I think this confuses people. And because it's such a challenging read, because it's so goddamn original, I really think it leaves Nexus in this odd sort of liminal space, kind of like a just a weird, I don't know if you want to call it an uncanny valley of sorts, but it's like, it's neither fish nor fowl. It was created on some level to look like a superhero book. But anyone who picks it up thinking that it's that is going to be sorely disappointed. And I think that- Completely. They're going to hate themselves. Yeah, right. Yeah. People don't know what to make of it. So it's like one of those stories that has to teach you how to read it. And I think it's that sort of challenging nature to it 
that for a lot of people, they're just like, ah, fuck it. I don't get it. It makes me feel dumb. You know what I mean? Like I can imagine okay, a lot now, of readers okay, being now, like, yeah. I'm dumb. I'm d- okay. Now, <laughs> yeah. see, it's, it's okay. That That is a really, really, you know, great insight on the book because you know, look, I've suffered a lot of that in Hollywood trying to write stuff that is like really out the box. But, and, and I kind of, and I kind of, I mean, I think in my own head, it's like, it's like certain comics that I've read, like where they do shit like this, a really original type shit. It's if mm-hmm. it really burns in my heart as like this is what storytelling can do. This is what storytelling can be because it's 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 a little harder to like you know to to you know it's not candy right. It's like right. it's, it's this is like some broccoli for you to eat, but it's broccoli <laughs> with some it's with with some with some brown butter and some really good salt. I mean, it's so good, but it's yeah. like one of these things. But you're absolutely right because look, I think about Alan Moore. And you're right, it's those books. But here's a difference, right? So Viva Vendetta and Watchmen, they're short-run books, right? 12 mm-hmm. issues, I think six issues and everything like that. Baron is doing – they did 90-some issues of this book. Oh, oh over yeah. over 100. Oh, over 100. 100. I, over 100. I, I, count, I count it on Wikipedia. It's like uh, it's like a little bit over 100, which is a staggering amount of issues for a creator-owned – a largely creator-owned creator book. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting too is is that we talk about these guys uh, more. I, I think more is a special case, but you know Frank Miller, like he's mainly known for Daredevil and Dark Knight Returns, and uh, you know I mean look and but some of his other work like Sin City and like Hard Boiled, which which I think is more fascinating work by him mm. is celebrated but it's not ip driven right it's original shit you know and like yeah. some of my favorite john burns stuff is next men right but mm. that's not his most celebrated stuff because it's hard it's it's because because they're actually they're reaching to the boundaries of what their fans are used to and i you know and, and when guys do stuff like that it's not an easy read it's like i, I tell every, every time i never read the legion of superheroes until I read the one that Keith Giffen did with the beer bombs writing it. They had that one where it was like oh, five, uh, years five, later, years. five years five later. Five years later, yeah, yeah. You yep. know, that you, that you, that you, they throws you in with issue number one, and all the heroes are being rolling around by their weird-ass fucking alien actual names, not their code names, and they're not wearing their super suits. So it takes – so you as the reader have to begin to kind of like fill out a spreadsheet in your brain to understand mm-hmm. the relationships. And I think that is what is hard – on comic readers, it's hard on it's hard on any reader. You know, it's it's it's, uh, it's you know, it's like you pick up a fantasy novel and there's four or five pages of like here are the houses of the family, the family trees, <laughs> like that. It's like, but but at least they're giving you that. In 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 Nexus, he doesn't do that. In that in that League of superheroes, they don't do that. So it requires so much more of the reader to you got to really be engaged. And I think it's sad that being engaged means that you can't enjoy dope shit. And it, it, Nexus is so dope. And here's the thing that's crazy, right? We're, like, we're mainly talking about, like, Baron. We're not even talking yeah, about so like, Rouge contributions. We're talking about Rouge contributions. 
you read my mind. You read my mind. That's but, literally but, the next thing I was going to say is we got to get to Steve Root in a second. Steve Root is saying, I know, but but yeah. but it's just, but 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 even like Root says in this one interview, he was saying this is it's like the Nexus was was entirely Baron's idea. He came to him and talked mm. and talked about it like like over dinner. So he said, "Here's what I want to do," and and Root said, "I'm I'm in for it. I'm da- I'm down for the ride." But I don't think that Root knew where Baron was going to go. Cause even if you look at the first issues, although the characters and the mm-hmm. storyline is really, is, is, is very, is so like designed strongly yeah. that he, like he goes so far. Like that one issue, you remember the issue when he like goes to like that, to, 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 to you know, to, 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 to that Sove planet and he's walking around and he's hanging out with the people on the street for, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, he's meeting, it's, it's almost, like, it's almost like he's hanging out in Moscow, you know, yeah, like it's, hiding it's out the one, there. The one where he goes to assassinate the general. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, oh, oh yeah. The general who knew his dad, he, and everything yeah. like that. It's like, that's such a weird issue I mean, mm-hmm. I, you, you know, we were try, trying to think about people who are comparables. And you were saying earlier, it's like, it's like the book has to teach you how to read it to enjoy it. And yeah. I remember reading that, like, one of my fa- like, one of my top three novels of all time is Umberto Eco's uh, Name of the Rose. Mm. And, he, and he even says in the intro to the book, he's like, my first hundred pages of this novel – is going to teach you how to read the novel, you know, and then and then the, and, the, and then there's another 600 pages. So like, so it's like, and, and now look, now, now he's a, the he died a couple of years ago, but he was the foremost uh, professor of semiotics, so signs and symbols. So he's telling you, I know how to make the signs and symbols mean more than what you think they are, but you just got to be patient with me, you know. And I think the only other writer. Who did the kind of tone variation that Baron does is um, that guy named Bulgakov, the Russian guy who wrote the Master and the Master and Margarita, because okay. that is a book that flies around tone like this. Because th- that book is about if the devil came to Moscow, what would he do? Because he's coming, you know, he's Satan. He's shoving Moscow at a time when there's that Christianity has been banned. In the Soviet Union, so he's trying to make a comment like, "Oh, if we get rid of Christianity, are we saying the devil doesn't exist?" And the devil's like, "No, no, 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 no! I exist. I, ex- I like he's got to prove his own existence, like, like in a society that says Christianity does like doesn't exist. It's such a and it's and it's an absurd kind of like look at what is going on with what the Soviets are trying to push onto people. And I think it's the those are the, it's the only examples." That I can think of in literature. Now, granted, I I've read a lot, but I haven't read everything. Um, or maybe that one book by Italo Calvino called "If on a Winter's Night," which does mm. this weird sh- does this weird shit too, where it's like it tells you part of a story and then stops and goes another story that's another tone and then stops for it really finishes and it's just a bunch of sto- the stories that and 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 if, and if you're in a book, if you're in a story, someone is trying to find a book that they read that is the next story and it's just and, it, and but they never go back to the person who was reading that story. It is just this wild piece of experimentation in in just narrative fiction that that you. I think you're right. It's like People don't want to be, you know, condemned as being dumb. Yeah. They just don't want that at all. And if you do that to them, 
even if they can like be taught how to not be dumb, they don't like the initial of you're dumb. So let me show you how to be smart. They just don't like that. But I think that's what Baron does. So. <laughs> Hey there, folks. Uh, This is Steve and Chris, and please forgive the interruption, but we just had to uh, bump in here, bump our way, elbow our way into the scene to tell y'all about the fact that we have a Patreon that we are launching for this show, and we deeply appreciate everybody who signed up so far for the Patreon. It means more than you could possibly realize. It's helping us out so much to keep the show going, and we are giving y'all back a lot in return for a paltry $2 a month. That's all we're asking, 200 pennies. Not even a cup of coffee anywhere legitimate these days. 200 pennies a month. What you get in return, you get two episodes, two bonus episodes for subscribers only that are going to be solo one-shot episodes where Chris and I respectively each talk about comics that we're not otherwise going to be discussing on the show, and we're going to talk about them at length with the usual CRYB deep dive, discursive, uh, oddball treatment where we go in deep on these comics and we go on tangents and we tell y'all every single thought we possibly have in our head, you'll get two free episodes. And in addition to that, Chris, what else do they get for their two? You will be able to send us questions that will fill up our Q&A episodes. We will do a Q&A episode every season, and and it's all going to be questions from you, the listeners. And you can always submit questions if you are a subscriber to the Patreon. So please do your best. Find the 200 pennies and subscribe to our Patreon. We would absolutely... uh, you know, appreciate it and, and just adore you and you probably get a shout out um, and, the, and the other thing is you'll be able to suggest what books we cover in subsequent seasons you know what books are going to get the comics watch your brain treatment um, and that's only for subscribers so please subscribe we will love it Patreon is how you find us and you hit subscribe there's only one tier uh, and Steve before we get back to the show I want to know what book might you cover uh, okay. in your one-shot episode. It's a great question, Chris. And uh, there are so many bizarre comics from comics history that uh, I am going to want to cover on these one-shot episodes. But uh, just one of them, I would say, is a an extremely obscure miniseries that DC Comics put out in 1989 that was two issues in the uh, so-called prestige format, the Dark Knight format, if you will. And it was called Justice Inc., and it was written by Andy Helfer, and it was drawn by Kyle Baker. And when I say drawn, it was painted by Kyle Baker in a very bizarre, uh, unique style of painting that I don't know that he has used before or since. And I heard Kyle Baker talk about this once, and I think he said it was an incredibly laborious painting process, hand-painted, that he abandoned soon after this book. But it's a really weird-looking book in the sense that the characters' faces are very much obscured and they're they're almost faceless like they have just weird sort of indentations on their faces but they don't look like normal people and the faces look just very odd throughout this whole comic it's the whole thing looks like it's just it's like through like a, a like a gray screen effect or something like it's a it's a really deeply weird looking book visually and story wise uh it's kind of sem- a semi-connected 
pulp story that is connected to The Shadow, which was the other book that Helfer and Baker had just finished a run on before they did this. And the little write-up here from mycomicshop.com talks about how... uh, By the time you met him in the pages of The Shadow, Richard Benson was an old man still practicing his craft, living off past glories. Now come back to 1948, when Richard Benson was in his prime as the renowned freelance crime fighter, The Avenger, head of the small band of criminologists known as Justice Inc. Uh, they, uh, the Avenger and his cohorts are enlisted by the CIA to infiltrate the upper echelons of the emerging third world nations and impersonate their leaders. Oh, this sounds like it could be a problematic story. Uh, but as is often the case in affairs of intrigue, the circumstances of the Avengers' employ are not what they seem. As Richard Benson discovers the truth, he vows to destroy the agency and all that it stands for. Um, this is the two-issue limited series. Um, from the critically acclaimed team that brought you The Shadows, suggested for mature readers, DC Comics 1989. Um, I don't know that I ever read this comic, but I've had it in my collection forever, and I look forward to actually experiencing it. And um, love, love, love Kyle Baker. I think he's one of the most underrated comic artists in history, and I'm excited to, to check out one of his works from his prime, I would say. Well, you know what's, okay, you know what's interesting about this? is that I have this book. I remember oh, you do? reading it. I remember reading, well, I remember reading it because mm-hmm. I was so into that shadow run that Chaikin and then Sienkiewicz and then Helfer and them, yeah. you know, they, they came in and, it, and I was, I couldn't get enough. We mentioned the guy, the art of the face where he was drawing this. I want to say he was penciling the shadow in that weird technique, but he didn't paint it. Or maybe the covers were painted that way. I can't remember mm-hmm. now, but I remember I reading the covers. Covers yeah. might have been reminiscent to this technique yes. that we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. That's for sure. For sure. You, you talk about the what's happening in the the forties and everything. It so sounds like some sort of offshoot of, of what inspired James Robinson when he did the Golden Age, which we will be covering mm. on this show sometime soon. Sometimes uh, maybe after this. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, that's really so that's, interesting. That's my yeah. book. That's my book. It's one of my book. books. So what? What, are your what, books what, what about you? What about what about you? What what books are you considering for your one shot episodes, Chris? Well, you know what I, I there was a book. Um, it's a mini series. I think I'm just gonna read the first issue. I might read a whole thing, but it was so kind of groundbreaking to me. Um, it's called Nick Fury versus Shield, and oh, I, yes. I, I, I want to say Paul Neary did the art on this. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, but I thought it was interesting because it was the it was a time. I don't remember when they took in a kind of character like that and that organization, which had always been popping up around, you know, Marvel comics stuff in the eighties and seventies and sixties to kind of like solve kind of weird things, and then they totally dismantled it. They absolutely dismantled everything, and they killed all those characters yes. who were part, ooh, part of the Howling Commandos. They all got wiped off the earth. I was like, this is shocking. So I was going to talk about that because I remember that, and um, I remember, I, remember I, I, got, I remember getting the trade paperback of that. I got the issue somewhere, but I remember I got the trade. So that's what I think I'm going to read in one of my solo episodes. So that's stay a great tuned. pick. 
That's a great pick, man. That's a that's a largely also kind of forgotten series, but that was a big release at the time. Speaking of the Dark Knight format, that was also that prestige kind of square bound yeah, prestige, yeah, Dark Knight yeah. format. Yeah. And I remember the second issue of that book in particular had, you know, what to me is a very iconic Nick Fury uh, versus Shield uh, cover that, or I mean, just iconic cover, period. But it's a Bill Sienkiewicz cover, which I completely had kind of forgotten he did. But now that I'm looking at it, it's like in that same period of Electra Assassin or shortly after. And it's like a really, a pretty classic Sienkiewicz cover of yeah. Nick yeah, Fury yeah, yeah. standing back to back with a woman with giant guns that he's holding. And yeah, it's a very classic St. Cabbage cover and man, some beautiful covers on this series altogether. So yeah, yeah, yeah cool. The, very the, cool the story, paint, man. Is the, is the painted cover, I can't remember who mm-hmm. did the cover. Um, I mean, they're all painted, but like that first issue or something like that, or I, I, maybe mm-hmm. it's the trade, but um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I always remember that book and it was such a, you know, it was such a big, I was just a big like Nick Fury fan. The whole just the, yeah, the, just 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 the Storenko stuff. I mean, I've got that fucking that that that, that whatever that artist edition thing is huge. It's huge ass tome. So uh, I'm curious to curious about about that book will be one of the books that you might get a chance to hear about if you are a subscriber to the show and for two dollars a month you can become a subscriber on our Patreon page. And now we will get back to the show. It's crazy. <laughs> it's phenomenal to me that like some of your comparables that you can think of for Mike Barron and for what Barron and Rude are doing here are Italo, Calvino, Umberto, Eco, and uh, Russian, some Russian literature, which is, of course, very apropos. But right. it also kind of shows you how simultaneously like high minded and adventurous what they're doing here is. But yet there is just this playfulness to it and just a pop to everything that feels like it's mashing up all of this experimental literature, Russian literature, history, all that through the blender of comic books and the yeah, visual yeah. influences of like you say Alex Toth and and maybe some some Max Fleischer cartoons and Space Ghost and all of Steve Rude's major influences Jack Kirby of course and all of that in a blender you know it's like Jack Kirby meets Alex Toth meets Russian literature and like the suffering and existential philosophical angst of people who had suffered through this brutal empire. Like it's just such a phenomenal mashup of these elements. And it's really doing what people always say that great writers and great artists are supposed to do. You're, you're mashing up these elements that are clearly the individual passions of rude and barren. And it's not like Steve rude necessarily on his own, I'm assuming had any kind of obsession with Russian literature. And it's not like Mike Barron on his own had any kind of fandom inherent within him for space ghost. You know, it's not like on their own, either one of these gentlemen would have created something that was such a crackling kinetic mix of influences that does as Harlan Ellison said, Quite plainly, it glows with originality. There is nothing else like this book. And I mean, 
the philosophy and the the humor it's all just it's all there it's all fucking nuts and you know the the three part uh story the the trilogy where they cross over with baron's other book badger, oh, badger. the badger thing yeah. yeah 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 i was kind of prepared and they, they go to this place nexus and judah they're in a spaceship and they're out for some crazy drinking expedition through the galaxy and then they get sucked into a black hole and on the other side of the black hole they get trapped in this bowl-shaped world like a world that's in a giant bowl and this world like once they're there they meet this like flying fucking manatee looking alien cyclops creature who says to them, like, look, you're in this crazy fucked up place and you're going to have to go through these three different sort of checkpoints to get out of this place and you'll have three different types of battles. Uh, And the final battle is a philosophical battle. And they are... Yeah, which is crazy. It's insane. And, And so just like... If I read you just a few lines here of the dialogue where they get through the first two rounds of battle and then suddenly you come in on a scene where they're in this alien landscape and it's Badger, who's Baron's quasi-superhero, berserker, kind of Wolverine-ish character from this other book, The Badger. And it's Badger talking to Horatio, a.k.a. Nexus, while while Judah's hanging out here in this alien landscape. And just to give people an idea of the kind of writing we're talking about here, Baron has uh, Badger here saying, you see, Horatio, people are basically scum. I look out for number one and those few people I care about. Horatio says, yes, but your actions as a vigilante seem to indicate that you're trying to impose a moral standard, a superego, if you will, on society. And Judah says, ah, pain's all gone, my fellow travelers. We haven't been attacked in three days. When do we get to the ring of philosophy? (laughs) Meanwhile, Horatio and Badger ignore him. And uh, Horatio says, if you believe people are scum, why do you try to change their nature? You know it's hopeless. Well, I'm on a mission from God, and I like to make the drongos sweat a little, of course. Uh, Judah says, ahem, where? I say, where is the ring of philosophy? We should have reached it by now. (laughs) Horatio says, God, what God? Uh, God, God, God's a badger. He has chosen me to do his special work, to seek out injustice or even rude behavior and punish the guilty. And so they go on having this crazy philosophical discussion and then it gets to a point where um, Badger says, uh, don't worry about it, Fuzzface. If there is danger, let it come. Relax, be here now. Go with the flow. Do your own thing. The Tao is elusive and intangible. Get me? And Horatio says, my dear Badger, you are correct in your Zen, but diffuse in your Tao. For Taoism is a wider ranging concept than you might believe. Far from forbidding discipline, it embraces it. Let me give you an example. And it goes on and on like this. And this is like supposed to be a fucking superhero comic on some basic level. No, no. And this is is insane. This is insane, but but it's so wildly entertaining. But was but but see this is what we were saying before. It's like he can jump from total philosophy to yes. slapstick comedy in the same panel because 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 every time Judah is saying where's the ring of philosophy, he's <laughs> right. too slow to realize they're already in it because these other guys exactly. are fucking having the debate right then. It's like this level. That's that's where he's genius on a thing. Yeah. But see, okay, but see, now I want to just kind of dovetail into what you just mentioned about the alien landscape so we can talk yeah. a little bit about fucking Steve Rude. Yes, please, Steve please. Rude, Steve Rude, I don't know anyone as unique as him in this book, right? Mm-hmm. Because 
as cool as Jack Kirby is with all his kind of like creations and the way he draws and it's, I think I think Kirby's true kind of like gift to comics is panel composition, page composition and how to draw the form to in the most dynamic way. And he has some cool technology because, see, one of the things that I was really young that I always used to kind of judge how good an artist was, was how good you use technology. Because the technology, some people can just kind of like push in the background just as bullshit. But the stuff that Rue does in this book, like, mm-hmm. like just take the bowl-shaped world issues, right? Those three issues. Yeah. The yeah. landscapes he creates, the ships he creates, the technology he creates, the type of fucking like the acting he puts on their faces – it's yep. just like who is this skilled? Who and 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 it's and it's all alien. Like there's yeah. nothing that he like like what's he drawing this from? He's drawing right. it from, like like it's it's almost like he's got some psychedelic drugs he's taking constantly <laughs> to create this. But he's not because he's clearly being able to like draw stuff in it and stay on target and tell a story. But you look at it and just like. How's he like the guns, the clothing, the backgrounds, and he jumps around, and that's just the alien landscapes. When they go to Earth yeah. and they're at the, they're at those little restaurants where they're they're kind of just like some modern like like when Nexus out with like Sundra Peel and they have these little candlelight dinners and there's like Maitre D's, like he's able to draw then the regular shit that we know is like that we understand is like is our world. He draws that fucking amazing too. It's just like there's nothing he can't draw. That's what's yeah. fucked up. About, 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 about it's it's fucked up because he's not loved he's not loved more than that like yeah. like, like like most people have like there might I can't really say off the top of my head like like what is he bad at now granted you look at the black and white stuff and it's and he's not fully there but by the time you get to that final issue in the black mm-hmm. and white one where he's fighting yep. the guy with the heads yep. he's there in terms of yeah. like his control of the form what he's trying to say and he keeps getting better and better and just the, the the rendering gets better and better and the but the thing that he does also too fucking cool is the backgrounds mm-hmm. it's just like you, like you can't you can't underestimate how much detail work he does it's it's kind of mind-blowing that he's doing this on a monthly book like this or or, or, or even if it was a bi-monthly book I, I don't know what it, how it was what the release schedule was but you look at it and you're like what the fuck is going on and what's crazy <laughs> is it's crazy it's not where we got yet, because but later on in the run, his backup artist is motherfucking Paul Smith. Like that's his yeah. step down level. Is like we can yeah. we we we, yeah. we can go to Paul Smith, who 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 arguably <laughs> is my favorite X Men artist. Arguably, uh, yeah, Paul he Smith, is. who's a legend he's, in his own he's right. A legend, yeah. He... And, and 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 he's the backup artist yeah. on Nexus. It's insane. Yeah. It's truly insane. Yeah. I mean, you're right. <laughs> No, you're totally right. And I'm glad you I'm glad you kind of redirected us a little bit to Steve Root here because I feel bad that we've we've gushed so much about Mike Barron. But I think that's also probably because we're both coming at this from the perspective of writers. And that's kind of our our primary lens on some level. But I think we're both also people who are extreme fans and uh, appreciators of great comic art. And I mean, for me, Steve Root is really one of the all-time greats. And I can't really say that there's anyone in my lifetime who fucks with Steve Rude. I can't really think of a comic artist that I can pull out of my head, certainly in the world of comics that I'm familiar with, which is American comics in large part. And I think there's no one 
in my lifetime who I can look at and say, oh, they're way better than Steve Rude. Steve Rude. Oh, not better. Not better. No, no. I mean, you can say someone else is a master in their own way, but Steve Rude is on his own level. Steve Rude is, what he is doing here is just extraordinary for so many reasons. And I think what you're saying about the world building is absolutely true. These are alien landscapes, alien ships, alien clothing. And I think the thing that I really want to emphasize is based on everything that you're saying here, and it's so evident with just any kind of flip through of any issue, Steve Rude has lived in this world. He has lived in these worlds and he has given everything careful thought. There's a lot of thinking going on. These are not just random designs for anything. It's all been very carefully considered and you can see it in the work. It's got a lived in quality to it that is really just, it's amazing. It's truly a marvel visually because nothing looks like it is being slapped on the page without really careful thought and brilliant execution. Um, It is just a masterclass in comic book art and composition and character design and world building. And like you say, there's not really any freaking thing that Steve Rude does not do at an extraordinary, unbelievable level. It's, it's a masterclass in comics art. Although I do think that to the average comics fan, and this is where it sort of dovetails a little bit with what we were saying about Baron and why the book is perhaps not appreciated the way that it should be, right? And I understand, again, we're saying all this with full knowledge of the fact that it was celebrated widely in the 80s and certainly in the 90s as well, I'm sure. But yes, it was celebrated within comics with Eisner Awards and a devoted, fervent community of fans. But we're talking about this in the context of 2021 and why isn't the book Nexus on the lips of every single serious-minded comic fan out there, right? And and I think that part of the reason for that is how challenging Baron's writing is, like we talked about. And Baron's writing mm-hmm. says, come on, keep up, keep up, okay? Yeah. Here, throwing a bunch of concepts at you, keep up, all right? I'm not dumbing it down, I'm not making it easy, just stay with me, and if you don't, I don't care, right? Baron's throwing all these ideas at you. I think in his own way, Rude is sort of the perfect compliment for Baron because Rude also, he's interesting as an artist because the work is dynamic in its way, but it's also got it's also got a subtlety to it and it's got a grace to it. And it's you're, got a you're beauty. So right. It's got you're a beauty so right. to it, right? And that's something that very few comic artists have mastered. And Rude's characters move with a grace, like Nexus moves with the grace of someone who actually danced in a Russian ballet company, just to continue with our Russian motif here. He's a very graceful character. And I think that grace sort of imbues a subtlety upon the art that comic book fans are not necessarily used to appreciating. I know I certainly wasn't when I was a kid, because I remember as a kid, like, I loved a lot of comic artists, but even the artists that were sophisticated that I fucked with when I was young, someone like Bill Sienkiewicz, who was probably my favorite comic artist when I, when I was like 14, 15, 16, 17. And like, I was precocious, I guess, to love Bill Sienkiewicz, even though his work was, was experimental. However, it was experimental with a certain aggressiveness 
to it, right? Sienkiewicz's yes, work yes. is like his work, and I adore Sienkiewicz's work, but it's like it's like a primal scream of emotion. And I think as a kid, even though it was adventurous and it was outside the box and it looked different, I was able to tune in to Sienkiewicz and appreciate him just because there was something in the work that still spoke to me as a kid that felt like, ah, like there's some sort of emotion and whether it's, you know, frustration you feel as a kid or anger you feel, there was some, there was some way that I was able to tap into that work. I did not have that way in with Rude when I was a kid. And I wonder about that because I think because of the subtlety of Rude's work, I think it's like Rude's work teaches you to appreciate it also. The more that you sort of spend time in his worlds and realize how consistent, how fully formed, and how just boundless his imagination is, as you keep reading issue after issue, it becomes immersive in a way. But I can't lie. When I was a kid, I didn't get it. And when I look at Rude now, he's in my pantheon. He's in my top 10 comic artists of all time, maybe top five. You know, he's well, extraordinary, but I didn't get it as a kid. And I'm I'm curious about that because I think there's something in Baron and Rude both as a writer, as, as an artist, that's not immediately accessible to the average comic book fan that is looking for an adrenaline jolt some sort of thing that they can relate to that presses a button that's been pressed many times emotionally in other comics. I feel like Baron and Rude are operating at the margins of what comic fans have been exposed to, certainly in America. And I think it's what's glorious and amazing about the work. It's why it does glow with that originality. But I think it's it's a double-edged sword because like you said, people can't put their arms around it visually or narratively it's like you don't quite know what to make of it and the only way to really embrace it and understand it is to invest a significant amount of time and attention into the work which is absolutely worth it and now i just can't wait to read the whole run all over again the whole run yeah yeah it's for some reason there's something about the work that doesn't immediately yield all of its secrets to you nor does it immediately punch you in the face because it's it's almost like it's too smart for that and it's also interested in much deeper things and it's not going to give you like a cheap pop the way a lot of comics will do so anyways that's a lot but that's sort of like i'm trying to just get my head around it all well okay so that's interesting you make an interesting question because you're basically talking about the grammar of comics that everybody knows if you if you think about these the stuff, look, these 16 issues that we read, yeah. I can't think of a splash panel that he's done. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there might be one or two. So, yeah. and I think what you're saying about the aggressiveness of a Sienkiewicz, if you, th- I mean, and it's really like, so that's Sienkiewicz's work, but that's also like Frank Miller's work in like, um, sure. in, in, uh, uh, Dark Knight, obviously, but obviously like in Sin City. But is, yeah. is Daredevil, and, but but the rest of those things and all these guys is their work is very graphic, right? Mm-hmm. It's very what you think about what graphic arts are about. It like like it reads really far from away. And what you also said was there's a grace to mm-hmm. bear, to Rude's work that when you start reading it, you just are like whoa. It's, it's interesting you said about he could draw anything and it's like it is lived in. Like I was watching that cartoonist cafe. Uh, episode a month yes. or two ago about when they broke down 
um, um, hard boiled, right? Mm-hmm. And they were talking about how fucking Jeff Darrow, he must have like this photographic memory because he draws everything to such a degree of detail that it's like, that that it almost feels like he had models in front of him, but you know mm-hmm. he didn't because it's like Tokyo. So his memory's so strong. Like like I feel that Rude has that same memory ability to draw, but it's but he's even better because he's creating shit we've never seen. Yeah, it feels so real, and it's interesting because there's that one famous painting. I want to say it's by Raphael. It's called. It might not be Raphael, but it's called School of Athens, right? And it's that mm. it's like you know, and it's like this with Plato and Aristotle are talking in the middle, and all these other philosophers are walking around, blah blah blah. But they always say that as cool as it is, all these people in here, the architecture of that building does could not exist. Like there's, like the domes are too wide, and the columns don't couldn't support it, everything like that. And it's fascinating. He's like, oh yeah, because he's an artist, he's not an architect, blah blah blah. But if you look at fucking the stuff that Rue creates, his wild ass creations, it feels like it could exist, like it could be constructed. And <laughs> if and it, and it, and yes, it's science fiction out, so there's these weird forms and stuff like that. But it does feel like he understood the architect, the architectural physics of what was going to create this, and that's a level of genius that yes. I don't know if anyone is able to even like. Like put their heads around. So you look at it, you might even be able to yeah. comprehend what he's. I think you're right. You can't comprehend how beautiful his work is. I think the only artists, like you know, there's those guys in the 20s, you know, like Wyeth and like Lion Decker and the mm-hmm. and the Granddaddy guy, fucking Norman Rockwell. It's mm-hmm. almost like it's almost like if Norman Rockwell's work was being channel through jack kirby's kind of like <laughs> his lines like that's right. how you can kind of look at how beautiful but how but how like so like physically correct the yes. uh um the figures are because even when people are like crazy big and monster out and stuff like that they're still proportioned right like there's nothing yes. that seems like that doesn't fit like because you know how a lot of them in anime like the swords are too big or things <laughs> that just don't like what the fuck is that is the physics behind that rude yeah. does none of that and it's yeah. really bizarre that that's his ability to create shit from wholesale cloth with no reference and it still yeah. feel like you said it feels lived in and it existed somewhere in some time and he's yeah. able to like peek into some some architects kind of like blueprints to create shit it's 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 insane and then he's got the costume design that yeah. like fits it's it's just like dude like what are you doing <laughs> like what the what, fuck I mean, like, and, and the thing is a lot of times that you, like his panels are so dense but not unreadable you know, I was mm-hmm. watching that one, that woman named what's her name, um, Elsa uh, Chartier. She has her little YouTube channel. I was oh, watching right, one right, right. How she broke down like a panel from uh, Batman Year One. She was saying that like you know the the the, the Magic Kelly he knows how not to show detail at the right time and stuff like this because he's trying to like draw your eyes, show you something like that. But see, like so, Rude knows how to do that too. But when he when he used to show you detail. It's almost like the way it's colored helps shape where your eye is going to look. Because there'll mm. be these big-ass crowd scenes and and it's like in hands in the air, fists and shit like that. And those scenes are all kind of colored in a way where it feels like a mass. And then when you get into the what you got to look at, it's more detailed in its color. So, like, I think this guy's name is, like, um, Les Dorsheet or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's doing the colors. Like, he is instrumental, too, in, like, how the book 
like you you can consume it because it's not it's we're talking about it in a level that's like this guy's work must be impossible to look at on the page and and, and you know what and it, i mean i i, I it's weird like was it like what would the original art of this look like like how do you read it but the, but then you look at the black and white stuff and you go well that's what it looked like it's just colored and it's and it's and it's readable in black and white but he's able but to me it's interesting because because he did so much like cross hashing and sh- shading and stuff like that and the black and white stuff that he mm-hmm. that, that he that he didn't have to do with the color because he knew the color would handle all that kind of ability to shape what your eyes going to look and what's going to be, you know, like it was going to pop on the page because the book has got such a great use of like pop color, particularly mm-hmm. at the time where they're doing that four color process that you're yes. just like, what the fuck were these guys? I mean, it's just insane. It's insane what they're able to achieve in that four color process that the other books I think some of those, like the, the indie books, like I remember, like Comico's, like Grendel, not Grendel, but Grendel too, but also about like Elementals and like Mage mm-hmm. did really, really cool shit with the color too. That like was what the mainstream books like Marvel and DC weren't doing. I don't know why yes. what that process was because there's no like proprietary processes you could that somebody couldn't do. Um, it's just interesting to see, but the art is so. I think you're right about how you say it doesn't have those graphic pa- those graphic panels. There's no like, oh my god, like let's put this up on the wall kind of art, right? Kind of stuff that you think about for comic art. But when you look at a pan, you look at a page, or you look at a sequence. It's so like your eye never gets lost. No, it's, no, it's, it's exquisite. Just, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't understand. Exquisite. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you look at it, and you're like, I mean, like, look, like I said earlier, those illustrators from like the twenty, like, like in the in the in the say what the Roaring Twenties, right? There's all those illustrators before before they were like doing photography in magazine, like in newspapers and stuff like that, and in magazines, the people would illustrate that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the primary guy, obviously, is Norman Rockwell kind of stuff. But that was the main way of, like, doing advertising and stuff like that and doing fine art. And 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 that was a style that, that only really fine artists did. And then it disappeared once photography became a big thing, everything like that. But that's – so it didn't la- – it only lasted like 30, 40 years. But Rude is the total grandchild of all that masterful kind of like true illustration that when you think about what, okay, so, so what does the illustrator do? And he turns it into a style that works for comics. Cause like I said earlier, one of the things that works so well with his work is the expressions on people's faces. Yes. How he tells yes. the emotion. Oh, like, oh my God. What her, when Horatio was in pain, when someone is scheming, when someone is upset or laughing, like the it's like these big wild laughs, or the it's just it's so like, I mean it's like you've been saying it the whole time. It's masterclass work that doesn't get it just it doesn't make sense that it's not celebrated. I mean I mean again you're yeah. right you're right at the time it was, but it should have this lasting effect of like pushing everybody's buttons. Like how do we beat? fucking nexus the way they're like how do we beat fucking you know dark knight and Watchmen? and yes. that is it's it's not in the, it's, it's not in those conversations i understand i mean what we talked about today is a good it's not stuff i thought about about why it doesn't hit because you asked me why i don't think it hits and i, I never thought about that because i always used to say this book should be the massive book everyone should love yeah. but yeah, then yeah, again yeah. i never thought that it was well, gonna be too hard for people you know and maybe it is you know maybe it yeah. is well, um, you know what? It's it's like if Watchmen was 127 issues. Yeah. Would it be remembered the same way? Probably not. No. I think that no. you know, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, Saga of the Swamp Thing, 
that is one of my favorite runs ever on any comic book ever. I think it's absolutely glorious. I adore that run. But you don't hear civilians outside of comics talking about Alan Moore's saga of the Swamp Thing. No one's read those, you know, 40 some odd issues, whatever it is. Civilians talk about Watchmen. They talk about yeah. Dark Knight. They talk about V for Vendetta, whatever. The, the comics that are easy to digest. And I think that's a huge part of sort of the blessing and the curse of Nexus. The blessing of it is that Rude and Baron are enormously generous as creators. They're stuffing so much in there in terms of the language, the ideas, the characters, the world building, the visuals, the composition, the thought, just the the acting, the panel composition. It is just jammed to the gills with brilliance. And I honestly think you mentioned the word genius a second ago, and I was thinking about that as you said that, and I do not think that is hyperbole. It is not hyperbolic at all to refer to Nexus as a work of genius in comics. Now, if you want to talk about genres of comics, right? You've got your more literary genres. You've got your fanographics books and your, you know, your books published that are obviously aimed more squarely at a literary audience. And I love a lot of those books. And I grew up as a huge fantagraphics drawn in quarterly geek. And I was addicted to the comics journal and Gary Groth. And I read every editorial and I loved all of, all of those books too, as a kid. But Nexus is something else. Nexus is a genre book squarely in the tradition of an ongoing series in comic books with a built out world of characters. And that's a specific tradition in comics, an ongoing series that goes on for a hundred some odd issues. That's different than a literary comic that is released as a, you know, one thing under two covers that's a hundred pages, or it's different than anything that's published under the auspices of more like serious art, quote unquote. I think Nexus is pop comics, yet it is unbelievably philosophical and deeply felt pop comics. And I think it's really hard for people to understand what it is, but what it is, is genius. It is something that has never existed and will never exist again because it's the unique byproduct of these Two folks, primarily Baron and Rude. I don't want to, you know, not mention the contribution of the other brilliant people involved. Les Dorshield, Les Dorshield, the colors are lovely. Eric Shanower comes in and inks a bunch of the issues mm-hmm. and honestly mm-hmm. does a tremendous job. Actually, props job. to Eric yeah. Shanower because it's fucking amazing. Steve, I didn't realize it's, that it's gorgeous. Eric Shanower is a beast in his own right to be able to ink Steve Rude as well as he does. Like. Holy cow, that is a tall order, and Eric Shanower just kills it. It is beautiful work. He's a master artist in his own right, so I'll do credit to him as well. But primarily, Nexus, obviously, is the work of Rude and Baron. And really, I I don't know, you know, I don't know what else to say other about the book beyond the fact that it is the apex of a certain type of comics that I think you and I both have a lot of love for, which is an, an ongoing series, something that is creator owned and has sort of the life and the, the true heart and soul of the creators embedded in the work. And you mentioned how much Horatio and Nexus changes just over the course of the, the 16 issues we read. And really they were taking full advantage, Baron and Rude 
of the fact that they had control over this character and they could do whatever they wanted with him, even though I think the creator ownership, that was sort of problematic at first comics. It wasn't exactly creator owned. There were some difficulties there, but ultimately, you know, the book went through a lot of permutations and there were some ownership issues, but Baron and Rude have got the book back. But when we talk about creator owned, I think what we're talking about is the spirit of the book. And now, thankfully, I believe it is truly creator owned and they got the rights back from uh, Mike Richardson at Dark Horse, uh, which is terrific. But the book has always felt like a creator-owned book, even if First Comics had some problematic ownership issues with their creators. Baron and Rude always put their heart and soul in it. It never felt like work for hire at all. This always felt like something that they adored and they poured all themselves into. And I mean, it is just, it is a work that I think will stand the test of time. And what's unique about it ultimately is when you go back and you read it, I mean, I had my memories of it, but I hadn't read it for a while. I got to be honest, it is better than I expected it to be. And I expected it to be very, very good. But I think not only does Nexus live up to the hype, I think for anyone who actually understands comics and knows comics, it is better than the hype. It is a glorious piece of work that is so freaking just fun to read that I I just think it's it's an amazing thing that everyone should be aware of and everyone should revisit but yet there is a subtlety that is fascinating to me that because Baron and Rude both appear to me to not have a lot of ego in a certain way as creators and what I mean by that is that Rude like you say he's not going for crazy splash pages he's going for how do i tell the story how do i execute the telling of the story he's not thinking about oh am i going to be able to sell the original art for this page let me try to goose my original art sales he doesn't seem to give a shit about that he's trying to draw the most perfect rendition of this story to make it as immersive as possible and i think that baron the same way baron is not really overly concerned with the audience here, I don't think. I think he's trying to write something that he and Rude can be highly engaged with that tackles stuff that they care about. And and I think that there's something about that that just that gives this book such a unique flavor that I hope that everyone that listens to us talk about it just goes and picks up one of the omnibuses or goes and finds the original issues. Honestly, they're not expensive. I would highly recommend getting the original issues for anyone who cares to. For me personally, that's always my preference. And it's got a highly entertaining letter column and the letters for column sure. in Nexus, for sure. you know, it's, it's wonderful. And you actually get uh, Harlan Ellison himself writes in a letter, I think in issue three or four and gives the book a whole lot of love, but then also critiques it a little bit. And it's kind of hilarious because you get to hear Mike Barron respond in in a little bit of a snippy way to Harlan Ellison's critique, <laughs> which, which is so funny to me because then they use they use Ellison's quote on the cover of one of the on next the covers. issues. But it's actually really funny, and I sort of appreciated how lightly attitudinal Mike Barron was with Harlan Ellison because it sort of felt to me like wow, like Barron's a young writer putting out his first real comic here. And Harlan Ellison's already kind of a legend. And I was kind of surprised to see, instead of just being like, oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ellison, for such a wonderful letter of mostly praise. Baron got in there and was like, let me, I'll find it and I'll read it to you. It's it's brief, but it's just funny to me though. But it, it just shows you sort of like the, 
you know, the the spirit and the confidence I think that the Baron and Rude had from the beginning in what they were doing. And um, and it's really it's really fun to see their their voices there too. Here I'm gonna I'm gonna find well, yeah, that letter. Okay. So, just, so this is the thing about getting the original issues is that one of the things I love about the letter column, particularly in those first comics, uh, you know, the indie comics, is that is that they actually use the comic letter column as uh, as like a as like a as like a, as, as a forum. You know, yes. it, it, it it wasn't like if you read the Marvel stuff or the DC stuff, it de- depends on the book. They might have a really good kind of like back and forth. And it's mainly like they did. There's a good job of that in Vertigo books. But you didn't really you see that in the eight, 70s or 80s comics, even in the 60s comics, where they were like these kind of like interesting, like the, it's a true discussion. Like it wasn't just PR, you know, like sucking sucking the dick of the creators exactly. kind yes. of stuff that yes. you see in, in most of this stuff. I think that was always, that's why it's always good, in my opinion. If you get the older books, Dark Horse stuff did this. Like I always talk about how the Grindel, like the 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 the, this, the 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 editorial for that is fascinating. Also, you mentioned like Harlan Ellison wrote in. There's there's a lot of big writers who would write in, or people yes. who, who who went on to become big writers. I remember, I, I think like Kurt Busick writes in on like oh, yeah. either Nexus or like Grendel in the letter column when he's trying to he's still reading or yeah. whatever. It's just really that's the thing about buying the original issues that you don't get from getting the omnibus. I understand people might it might be hard to track down. Yeah, but if I mean, you can get those, you get them. Yeah. Yes. Go, go online. Go online, folks, and you can easily find these Nexus issues. They're not expensive, and the letter columns really add so much context. And also, there's editorials in all the capital issues from Richard Bruning, who is the art director and the editor when they're with Capital. And he's incredibly gracious when the book switches over to First. Richard Bruning writes in a really sweet, kind of poignant letter, which they publish in the first issue from First. And Bruning talks about how how proud he is to see the book going on and how he thought he was going to have mixed feelings, but how he just basically wishes the guy's luck and writes a very gracious letter uh, to the crew at first and everyone. And so that was cool to see. But here's the Harlan Ellison letter, which is published in issue four, which actually is the issue that has the pull quote from Ellison on the cover. And so Ellison gives an incredibly uh, positive uh, sort of write up on the book. And he's writing in from Sherman Oaks, California. And uh, he says, uh, many thanks. He starts off and he says, many thanks for the courtesy copies of Color Nexus 1 and 2. You have just cause for pride. They are spectacular packages. Physically, they are the equal. And against uh, 97% of what I've seen over the years, the superior of your competition in the world of comics. And so he goes on, says nice things. And then he says, if I have any carp, it would be that the storyline seemed to be occasionally deficient in logic and continuity. They seem to suffer from the flaw of uh, the flaw of uh, ideation known as skip logic. They jump. There are gaps. As if Mike Barron knew his topic so well, he left out elements that were obvious to him, but not to the reader. And then he gives an example of this. Uh, take for the in- to, and so, anyways, he goes into the example. We don't have to get into that, but um. So then he goes on, though, and he finishes the letter by saying, nonetheless, Nexus is a delight. Uh, The flaw may be a serious one, but there is such a concomitant seriousness of purpose evident in your books that I have every expectation of your confronting the inadequacy and overcoming it. I do hope you will continue to send me Nexus so I can take pleasure in your growth 
and guaranteed success. Okay, so a little bit of critique in there, but Ellison is a legendary, not only legendary sci-fi writer, but a legendary uh, curmudgeon and a cantankerous fellow who's had his own sort of uh, flirtations with the world of comics. And, uh, you know, he's quite a controversial figure in his own right. Uh, He was at the center of a spectacularly uh, insane situation with a lawsuit with uh, Fantagraphics and Gary Groth when Michael Fleischer sued Gary Groth and Fantagraphics over something that Ellison had said in an interview in the journal and they all went to court. That's a whole other story, which is a really a wild story. And I highly recommend everyone well, look that up and find yeah, out about it. But, but let me just say, I'll, here's, I'll Baron's also, response. Oh, yeah. here's Baron's response to the letter. So Baron responds and he talks about, First, uh, he says some nice things and about how he himself had submitted a story for one of Ellison's uh, anthologies and and talks about sort of his his experience with that. And then at the end, Baron says. uh, The one thing that I've learned about our characters since I began chronicling their adventures is that any given story raises more questions than it answers. If we tried to tie up all the loose ends at once. It would uh, no more resemble real life than a Barbara Cartland romance, and we'd be stuck with a 1,000-page comic book. I hope that Nexus shares some of Harlan's Ellison. I hope uh, I hope that Nexus shares some of Harlan Ellison's concerns, concerns which he has shown uh, in stories like *The Discarded*. But stick with us, Harlan. I think we've got the internal consistency that you seek. You just have to catch on to our rhythms, <laughs> which wow. I thought was kind of hilarious that you get this back and forth between this legendary writer in the letter column and then the actual writer of the comic coming in and giving, giving kind of a balanced response, but also not backing down from what he believes is the inherent quality of his work and that he doesn't necessarily agree that there is this obvious flaw that Ellison's pointing to. To me, that's just a really like a delightful exchange in a letter column that you get to read in the back of a comic. And it kind of points to what you're saying, Chris, just there used to be so much added value in comics because unlike the vast, vast, vast majority of comics today, where if there is even a letter column, it's just incredibly boring sort of, you know, it's, platitudes and drivel and promotional PR or just, you know, nothing worth reading per se. Back in the day, back at that time in the 80s, comic book letter columns used to be places where you could get real debate and discussion. And like I say, soon readers will start writing in complaining about Clone Zone, the Hilariator, the the Lounge Lizard comic. And it's really kind of funny where you get to see these battles play out in the letter column. And, and that's something that's just so absent from comics today. And I think comics are so much poorer for it, but it's such an extra value to these original issues. And it also gives you an insight into the personalities and the worldview of Rude and Baron, because they both chime in at times into the letter column to answer some of these letters. And, uh, and it's really delightful. It's just so much fun. And, and it makes you feel a much more personal connection with the comic. I mean, for me, it really helps me feel a lot more sure, bonded with for the sure. comic. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to share yeah, uh, that. So, I thought that was okay, just so, too cool. No, that's good. There's two things. There's, two, there's last two things I, I, I want to say. And and then we I guess we can wrap it up. Uh, one, yeah, people should look up uh, Harlan Ellison because, you know, he sued James Cameron about the thing with Terminator. You know that, right? Oh, God. He's been in so many lawsuits. Wow. 
<laughs> I remember I did. That's right. Yeah, because he, yeah, and he, he, bought, he got a settlement he, out of that, didn't he? he yeah, so basically, you know, he he sued he sued James Cameron and Gil and her because he said they stole his concept from a, a, a an outer limits he did called um, "Demon with a Glass Hand," and mm. what I think in, I think after the after the lawsuit came out or he and he won it in all the subsequent versions of the Terminator, uh, the first one. It, like he gets some credit in there, like like in the credits. Um, but you, but you know, just last thing I want to say is you mentioned something about something, but the the world that that Rude is creating and Baron's creating, and the I, you know what it's made me think of. I mean, talking about um, Alan Moore and about if Watchmen was like uh, you know hundred issues or something like that. I think. And, and Watchmen's easier to it, it could play that long because he's dealing with superheroes that we understand. And I think that that thinking back about it, it's like Neil Gaiman's work on Sandman is probably the next thing that I can think of that reaches this high degree of like it's 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 very individual and it's this high degree of that it demands a lot from you. But the big difference between Sandman and Nexus is is that Neil Gaiman is dealing with these cultural artifacts that we're, that we're all familiar with, you know, and, and he's diving into them in a way that's very unique, but he doesn't need to explain to us about death, destruction, you know, dream and everything like that. You know, like we understand what the endless are and, and, right. and, and he just said, here's my take on it. And, and, and that, the great issue that I love to give the people about Sandman when he goes in and explains about uh, William Shakespeare, what it means to be, you know, like he does that one issue, this like Midsummer Night Dream, where they did the, 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 sh- the, that play for King Oberon and, and Hippolyta, like the real fairies. And it's like, he's playing on tropes that we know from Western and Western civilization, or when he goes into Eastern civilization, but, but Baron and Rue don't have that, that crutch of culture to rely on they're making it up wholesale and that i think mm-hmm. is what uh, do mm-hmm. i say i say that they're genius because you can't do that you know mm-hmm. like like I, you talk yeah. about world building everything like that and it's like these guys did it on a level that's like i mean like like maybe star wars does that right yeah. maybe that it, first star wars to a degree and but but then it keeps kind of like just stealing from the same well Oh, with SY the Star Wars films, there's diminishing returns with them because there's no, there's no new injection into that that universe of what's happening. Whereas Brandon Rue just keep doing that, keep doing that. Because um, you know we'll get to this later, but the whole thing with like Alpha and Beta, and then the Merc, and then other stuff. Yeah, right. It's just like they like like they keep, he keep pushing it in a way that that doesn't happen in other stuff. So that's all I wanted to say is my last thing. Um, yeah, so I guess for everyone who's listening, go fucking read Nexus. Go Don't read fuck Nexus. Around. Oh my go goodness. You will be so so happy and you will be a uh, a richer person for it. And here, before we wrap up though, I just there's one other letter column exchange that is just hilarious and I just want to sure, briefly sure, sure, read, read it. it. Okay, so this is Baron and Rude both responding, okay, to a letter writer who writes in again with a critique. And this is also fascinating to me, and I love this, that you read the Nexus letter column, and it seems like they're almost purposefully picking letters that are critical. Like, like it feels to me like Baron and Rude would be bored 
by themselves if they just published a bunch of gushing praise, which no doubt they must have been receiving a ton of. But it seems like they're they're picking the letters that they want to respond to in the letter column. And it's kind of just wild because for a book that is as extraordinary as this book is, it's hilarious to see them fighting in the letter column with some of the letter writers. So, So this guy writes in. Scott Grammel writes in from uh, from wherever, and he has a critique, and he likes the book overall, but he has some critiques on the logic of certain aspects of the story, okay? And this is coming just three issues or so, uh, two, two issues after uh, Barron's exchange with Harlan Ellison over this similar issue. So again, Barron is having his story logic questioned by one of his quote unquote fans. And so, so Baron responds first and then, and then rude comes in to respond. So the fan lays into the logic and then uh, he also has a critique for the art and Steve rude. And um, he critiques the fact that um, on Nexus's world, this is the part of the letter, you know, after the logic critique, he goes into the art and he says on Nexus's world, there are all these aliens and all of them that I've seen are basically human, except for slightly different heads um, and uh, different colored skin. How boring. Perhaps this is some sort of strange theory about the perfection of the humanoid form for sentient life, but I doubt it. Especially since in number four, the dude shows us a, quote, alien world with, <laughs> with some really, quote, alien life forms. Frogs, ducks, alligators, herons, quails, hummingbirds, and flying squirrels. Sorry, guys, but it looks like a failure of imagination to me. So it's kind of an amazing critique of a book that is so wildly imaginative. But okay, so this letter writer writing in to critique the logic and the lack of alien life forms. Okay, so then Baron gives a lengthy response that is almost as long as the very long letter itself. And then Baron wraps up his response by saying... After entertaining some of these thoughts, he then says, You may call the omission of such involved explanations, quote, skip logic. Um, Again, he's referencing what Harlan Ellison said. And in the past, we may be guilty of, we may be guilty of that, and we may be guilty of it in the future. But you, sir, are guilty of intellectual laziness. Exercise your noodle and try to come up with some of with some of your own explanations that's part of what the comic is all about now quit stepping on my feet and trying to lead mike baron so wow. so that's his response and then, wow. and then and then rude comes in to respond after that and steve rude says you're right scott i got carried away with the earth like animals i used to like to draw them as a kid thanks for the critique steve rude <laughs> I ain't got time for you. I ain't got time for your shit. That's hilarious. That's fucking hilarious. I love, I love both responses. Like I love, I love how playful these guys are in the letter column. I I just think this book is just, it is such a wild ride and like it invites a lot of thought clearly because it is such a thoughtful book, but man, if you've been listening to us for the last 90 minutes, uh, talk about this book, we could easily go on for another five hours about just the incredible stuff in this story and 
I mean, there's just so much here to discuss. And I think you and I both talked about already, Chris, that we might want to revisit Nexus again at some point and talk about another batch of issues and where the story goes and where Baron and Rude go, because I would love to actually look at more of it just because, as we said, this is not even the guys at the full height of their powers. And it's already jaw dropping. It's already astonishing. It's already one of the greatest comics of all time specifically one of the greatest ongoing series of all time. And frankly, I don't even think it's close. Like I can't think of too many ongoing series that I would even put in the conversation with Nexus. I mean, a hundred issues plus, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. how. Good yeah. 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 I mean, it's probably, probably just Sandman and maybe stray bullets. So the only two <laughs> yeah, long running books yeah. I could think of that are so, kind of like this unique vision of the creator um yeah 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 right something that's not something that's not corporate ip you know like something that's not just a long run on corporate ip something that's actually something with the heart and soul of the creators genuinely taking ownership and creating their own world that goes a hundred plus issues like yeah stray bullets is a really good one to throw in there um sandman I can't speak to because every time I try to read it, I it loses me at some point. But I know everyone tells me I'm wrong and I need to go back and, and actually finish Sandman, which I will do one day. Yeah, um, well, we'll talk about that sometime soon. Yeah, well, yeah, we should definitely come back to look at Nexus because you know, everyone who's listening, this is just the first 16 issues we've been talking about. We even, yeah. I mean, 16 issues out of 100, that's that's only 16% of the story. And, we're t- and we got <laughs> yeah 90 minutes out of it. So... Um, that is Comics Will Watch Your Brain for this week. And we will be back next week with, um, you know, something new to talk about. We're not sure yet, but something new. Um, all we can tell you is that it, it'll be something it, probably, cool. it probably won't be a new comic. That's all we can say. Yeah, it won't be. Won't be. <laughs> all right, everyone. We will uh, see you next week. And all right. Thank you, have Chris. a good day.